Let's pray together as we stand. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your sure word, your refining word, uh, your clear and present word. Uh, We thank you for this word that speaks to us and calls on us to shout unto you with shouts of joy, uh, to exalt you for who you are. You are God who is great in power and mercy and wisdom and strength, uh, great in love and great in battle and great over us. Uh, We do pray, Father, that we would see tonight clearly as you speak to us just who you are and so exalt you with shouts of joy. Amen. Please take a seat. And we're going to be looking at uh, Psalm 47, which uh, Jody read for us just before. It's page uh, 570, if you've got a church Bible in front of you. Psalm 47, page 570. And just as you're uh, finding the psalm again, if you've uh, shut your Bible, let me start by asking you an inappropriate question. Uh, How old are you? It's a question that I can uh, perhaps still get away with asking. I'm uh, very young, of course. But in terms of years lived on this earth, how old are you? Whatever your age tonight, however old you are, let me ask this. How many of the years that you've had have been lived? Really lived, not just existed, not just eked out, not just uh, time passing by. How many of the years that you've had have been lived? This sermon series that we've been in both uh, morning and uh, evening is all about that sort of question. It is a series calling us to wholehearted life, life to the full, not just existing life, not just life where we're eking out a safe, comfortable Christian life. Uh, The vow that we are making together as a church, each one of us and together, is that 2011 and into 2012 we will together suck the marrow out of the Christian life. That our lives, our soul, our all will be for our God. Now that's the agenda we've set together this year. And in the mornings we've been looking at Mark's gospel, hearing Jesus' radical call to follow him wholeheartedly, to give our whole lives to him. And in the evenings uh, we've been letting the Psalms stir us to the same sort of life. Psalms that tell you why your God is worth living, not just existing for. And we've seen already in uh, Psalm 45, he is our life, all of our life, our great love. And we saw last week in Psalm 46, he is with us. And now tonight the call will be this, he is your king, so he is worth your soul, your life and your all. The challenge that uh, Psalm 47 lays before us uh, tonight is that the purpose of life A life lived deliberately, not just existed, is a life lived uh, in exuberant, bubbling over joy for your God. The purpose of your life is to, as we see in the very first verse of our psalm, to shout to your God with cries of joy. I've got to be honest, as I started to prepare this uh, week, uh, being of the introverted type myself uh, and uh, you uh, being of the British culture, uh, this all seems uh, a bit over the top. Maybe sometimes, yes, Uh, maybe sometimes I feel that sort of bubbling over exuberant joy, but I'm far too sensible and dignified to be that way most of the time. After all, I'm British. Exuberant joy is uh, perhaps the the stuff of children, isn't it? 
that sort of uh, joy where you're trying to calm them down a bit. And yes, it is. They are much better at this than we are. Now, my youngest daughter, Tilly, who's uh, just one, uh, deep belly laughs come from her, laughs of joy about almost anything. And she's uh, bursting into laughs of joy. But the purpose of this psalm is to save you and I from thinking that we are too old for that sort of joy, that we've moved on, or that we're too jaded, too world-weary, or too wise. Because the truth is joy, exuberant joyful praise, is actually what you were made for. Now let me ask this as we begin. Christian brother or sister, when was the last time you felt an overwhelming sense of joy about your God? When was the last time as you thought that he was yours and you were his, a a smile, a sort of an infectious smile of joy crept across your face as you just thought what you were in on? Perhaps even caused you to shout or sing. And when was the last time you felt that sort of joy about your God? Let me say, if you've never felt that sort of joy, or not for a long time, then something is seriously wrong. There is no way to live wholeheartedly for your God if it is not powered by that sort of joy about him. This psalm is sung to us tonight, an old psalm, an old song. It's sung to stir your heart to that sort of joy in your God again. And this is how it begins. It begins by commanding you to be that way. You see it there in verse 1, heed the command of your God. Verse 1, clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. It's not unusual, is it, if you've read much of the Psalms, to hear uh, the Psalms calling on us to praise our God. But this call is unique. And not just because of its sort of exuberant, uh, bubbling joy, but look at verse 1 carefully. Look at who's actually being called to shout for joy. Shout for joy, all you nations. It's remarkable. Here we have a call from uh, Israel, God's people, God's special people. They were the people who wrote this song. The people that were chosen out of all the nations to be God's special people. They'd be his people, he'd be their God. That was the deal. Now they are calling on the nations who know nothing of their God to join in the joy, join in the praise. Here is our God, they say. Here is our king. So awesome is he to us, his people. So powerful, so good that you nations where you should come and join the party. Come praise our God with joy. The call's made even more remarkable as we'll go on in the psalm and see that the, the nations being called upon here to praise God with shouts of joy are the very nations he's just defeated in battle. Come all you nations who have just been whooped in battle, rejoice. Doesn't make sense, does it? Remarkable. And we'll come back to that verse, verse 3, in a few moments. But at this stage, hear this call in verse 1. All around the nations, throughout the earth, this call goes out as God's people run through the nations, calling them to praise. Clap your hands, you Aussies. Clap your hands, you Cambodians. All you Arabs, shout with joy. You Asians, cry out in joy. You Afghans, sing praises to him. See it there in verse 6? Sing praises to God. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. I love verse 6. 
Now, the image that comes in my head is, is a bit like one of those guys, if, if you've ever seen footage of uh, when they're recording a, a sitcom or a reality TV show, just before the, the show starts, they get some guy to come out and try and warm up the crowd, get them energised and uh, excited and happy before the, the actual main event happens. I mean, that's the picture in verse 6, isn't it, of somebody trying to get everyone going. But this time it's not for some overworked, contrived enthusiasm, some uh, dreadful reality TV show or sitcom. Uh, This call to exuberant joy is because the God we're called to praise is worth all the joy and all the shouts we can muster. The God who calls you to praise him with joy is so very awesome. Uh, But all too often we reduce him down, don't we? We study him like some science project. And not surprisingly, our knowledge of him therefore barely raises a tune of joy from us. When it should indeed cause us to shout and cry out for joy. I was reflecting on that this week and uh, the question that came to me is this. Why is it that I will at the slightest impulse shout for joy and pump my fist when the Wallabies score a try in the World Cup? Not that they did yesterday. (laughs) But I won't do that for my God. Just the slightest moment on a sporting field and I'm, I'm behaving like a crazy man. But not for my God. What's going on there? Well, this song is sung to change my heart and yours. So imagine, if you will, tonight as we look at this psalm together that we have an imposter in our midst. Imagine the psalmist, the songwriter of uh, this psalm before us, running up and down the aisles and in between the rows of seats, shouting at us, clap your hands, all you nations, Shout to God with cries of joy. And he's going to give you four reasons to join in his song. And here they are. Here's the first of them. You see it in verses 2 and verse 7. He is the king. Now why would Israel call on the nations? Nations that have uh, their own gods, their own objects of worship. Gods that they believe provide for them and bless them and rule over them. Why worship the God of Israel? Well, the names given to us for God in verse 2 will help us to see why. In verse 2 we're told this, How awesome is the Lord Most High? It's remarkable to find these two names for our God together. There is the Lord, the Yahweh, the, the name he gave his people, Israel, their personal name for their God, their father. They were his family. That's their name. But then you have him described as the Most High, a Leon. A name used for God when the nations are gathered too, when they're involved. And here they are together. The psalmist is saying to us, the nations, and that's who we are tonight. How awesome is our God, who is in fact your God too. For he is the great king, not just in Israel, but over the whole earth. The psalmist's claim is this, there is only one God over Israel, yes, but he is the only God over all the nations of the earth. There is no other. All the false gods, all the things we, the nations, worship, all that we depend on for life and breath and everything else, God, this God, is the one and only. Now, this is how in the New Testament the Apostle Paul puts it in uh, Athens in a, in a sort of a environment where uh, there was religious and cultural and political liberality everywhere. You name it, there was a God for it. Well, as the nations gathered there in Athens, this is what he said. People of the nations, 
The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't live in temples built by hand and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men and women life and breath and everything else. He made every nation to inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they'd live. He did this so that we would all seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. You see, God, the Lord Almighty, claims planet Earth completely for himself, every inch of it, all peoples. And we who know the gospel of Jesus Christ know how just decisively he has made that claim, making it through the mighty resurrection of his son, Jesus, from death. You see, it's the risen Lord Jesus who says, uh, upon rising from the dead, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am king of the lot. Therefore, go to the nations. God rules as creator and as king, as risen king. There is no other name to which we can cry out with joy. No other name before whom all knees will bow. No other name we can carry to the nations that will bring joy. No other name by which we can be saved. And when you see this clearly, the only right response is what you see in verse 7, to sing a psalm of praise to him. Or more literally, verse 7, sing a skillful psalm with whatever skill you have, uh, whatever you can muster, sing it to him. You who understand who he is. So there's the first reason to shout for joy. He is your king. Here's the second in verses 3 and 8. This is uh, my favourite. I'm not sure if I'm meant to have a favourite, but this is my favourite. He has defeated us. Here's where things get remarkable. How could defeat ever bring joy? Let me tell you, when I was watching uh, the Wallabies play yesterday, there was no joy. Now perhaps there is, uh, maybe, I don't know whether it's an exclusively British concept, but the idea of a noble defeat. We lost, but we lost well. Uh, Let me tell you, that does not compute to my Aussie brain. How can you lose well? There's no such thing as a good defeat. This psalm says God has won, not you. The nations are called to praise him here, as I said before, are uh, are the ones that he, this God, this great king, has just defeated in battle. You see there, verse 3, he has subdued, he has defeated the nations. He has defeated the peoples, or more literally, warriors, under their feet. It's a great description, isn't it, for the peoples of this earth, the nations. They are warriors, they're fighters, they're rebels against God. All the nations of this world line up against him. Psalm 2 puts it best, and it says this, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord. It's the story of our world. Each one of us as individuals and as whole nations declaring independence from the God who is king of heaven and earth. But what a foolish move. He's the king. To declare autonomy from the one who created you, who you receive life and breath and everything else from, is a foolish move. I've mentioned it before, but right in the middle of uh, Australia is this tiny little plot of land called the Hutt River Province. 
and the family that live there have declared autonomy from the rest of the nation of Australia. They are an independent territory right there in the middle. One family lives there. And every now and then uh, the, uh, the journalists uh, ask the politicians, what are you going to do about the Hutt River province? When are you going to take it back over and uh, make it Australian territory again? And they can hardly muster a response more than a smirk. Why would you bother? Well, God the King does the same when he sees even the might of the nations railed against him. Psalm 2 verse 4 says this, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. That's not all he does. He will not let our rebellion stand. Psalm 2 verse 5, he rebukes them in his anger saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And he did this with his nation Israel as David uh, led the conquest of Jerusalem, as that city was taken and made God's city, as David was installed king on that very hill. But that was just a hint of what was coming. As David's greatest son, Jesus of Nazareth, God's own son, as the rulers of the world banded together against him, as they brutally killed him, even as the peoples of this earth did their worst, as they slayed him to be free of him, even then the one enthroned in heaven laughed because at that very moment he had won. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill, he said. You see, at just the right time, while we were all lined up against him, he overcame us all. He wins. That's what the cross says. That's what we celebrate tonight as we take communion together. We celebrate our defeat. Uh, As you come up uh, to uh, take the bread and the wine tonight, you are coming up as one who has been defeated. And thank God he wins, not us. The victory declared in the Psalms uh, in this verse, verse 3, has and is being fulfilled through Jesus of Nazareth. We know this Jesus who had died, who was raised and even now sits at the right hand of God, putting all his enemies under his feet. He wins. Uh, Let me say tonight, if uh, you are not one of his subjects, If you have never bowed the knee before Jesus your king, this news of his victory could be the worst news you've ever heard. If you are living without acknowledging the God who created you, not even necessarily living a a bad life, perhaps quite a good one, not as bad as many. If you are living a a self-determined, not God-determined life, then God stands utterly opposed to your life. And he has set a day when he will judge your life. And his judgment will come and the verdict will be instant and the sentence eternal. But this victory could, in fact, be the best news you will ever hear. Picture the scene again, this battle scene of verse 3, this huge and powerful army. As we saw last, uh, last week in Psalm 46, uh, he is the king of angel armies charging against you. Jesus, the king, leading the charge. Then just as they're about to reach you, Jesus rides ahead and he offers his terms of peace. Not to call off the charge because God is just and it must happen. But his terms are this, his life for yours. And so he stands in front of you as his army charges over the top and you are hidden in him, untouched. Why? Because he loves us. And because he knows we are powerless. 
For all our rebellion against him, we are powerless to make amends, powerless before our own enemies of sin and Satan and even our own death. And so on the cross, he destroys them all. His life for yours, he wins. No wonder we are called to shout for joy as the nations. Now here's the third one. He claims us as his inheritance. You see it there in verse 4 and the start of verse 9. So this king, our God, uh, who has made everything, well, everything he has made and everything he has now won over, everything he has subdued, he claims as his prize. Every square inch of planet Earth, he says, mine. And as he's promised to do in Genesis 12 to Abraham, uh, the first of his people, he shares that prize with them. And in time they were given the promised land and after God had defeated the nations there. But even then he he promised more to them. As Israel grew as a nation under great King David and then his son Solomon, they were given more and more land until they were the richest and uh, the most wise of kingdoms. God keeps his promise. But there's something even more wonderful about his inheritance he chose for them. The reward wasn't just the land, it was the promise of himself. You see, when the promise was first given to Abraham back in Genesis 12, it was to have a a land for themselves and they would be a great people and they would be blessed. Well, by the time you get to Genesis 15, it all seems pretty hopeless. There is no land, there are no people and, well, here's God's response. Genesis 15 verse 1, don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. God did give the children of Abraham a rich heritage of nations, but the heart of the gift he gave them was himself. Their God was with them. Now here's the question though. Again with this call uh, for us as the nations to shout for joy as we watch him handing out all these gifts to his people. Why should we shout for joy? It's like looking in on a celebration that you're not invited to and you've got your face pressed up against the glass and you're sort of trying to convince yourself, I bet it's not as good as they, they look. They, don't, they look like they're having fun, but I bet it's not that good. But then the more you look in, the more your heart sinks. Yes, it is. It's better than I could have possibly imagined and I'm not invited. That's us when it comes to this promise. Uh, the letter to the Ephesians says this of us, we were far off without God and without hope in the world. Well, come and see what your God has done. He is king. He has defeated us and he shares the spoil of victory with his people, the children of Abraham. That's who they are. Yes, but not me, not you. I'm not the child of Abraham. I'm the child of Jeff Reese. He's the child of Norman Reese. Hardly a a spectacular family line. Maybe your family line is perhaps more impressive than mine, but I bet this, it doesn't trace back to Abraham, whose family were given this promise. You and I are outsiders. But hear the difference our Jesus makes. When you come to him in faith, those who are far off are brought near. Do you want to know how near? Have a look at verse 9. Such an amazing verse. The nobles or the representatives of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abram. How amazing is that? Seriously, look at that verse. 
The nations he has defeated assemble before him, not as some vanquished enemies, but his people. The people of the God of Abraham, the people of this promise. And as his people, we too share in this inheritance, this very great reward, this land, the promised country that is yet to come, Hebrews calls it. And while we wait, we, like our forefather Abraham, can delight in the inheritance that is already ours. We are people gathered with our God. You want a reason to shout for joy? Tonight is your very great reward from your God to be gathered with his people. And some of you were there uh, earlier as uh, the English Tea Party was happening. What a, what a wonderful expression of this psalm that was. This is what God is plotting and planning in our world, the nations to gather together and shout for joy to their God. What he promised Abraham and what will be fulfilled on the great day he uh, gives us the heritage of that new country, that new creation, that forever country. And then we won't be staring at a party that we're not invited to. No, we are the people of the God of Abraham, along with our brothers and sisters from every tribe and language and people. What a moment that will be. The complete reversal of Babel. Remember Genesis 11 where the nations gathered together as one to make a name for themselves, to make much of themselves? Well, on that day we will gather as one again, but we will make much of him. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. One final reason to do that. Verse 5, he is exalted. He is greatly exalted, says verse 9. Our God has been, is being and will be exalted. That's the great reality that should lead us to shout for joy. It's a joy experienced by uh, the moment that uh, may well have inspired the psalm uh, to be written. The, the moment when David, the conquering king, took Jerusalem and charged into that city with the ark where God was present with his people walking up the hill. What a moment that would have been. As they ascended up the hill, as verse 5 puts it, with shouts of joy, the people of Abraham lining the streets as the ark was brought into the city. Now, 2 Samuel 6 says of that moment that King David and all the people were celebrating with all their might. It's a great phrase, isn't it? Can you picture it? Such was the joy. Everything was given over to the joyful celebration of praise of their God. And the same is true when great David's greatest son, Jesus, who had died and then risen, now ascended, took his rightful place as king on the throne at the right hand of God as the ruler of the judge of the nations. Having just pulled off the greatest victory history will ever see. What a moment. Can you imagine that moment in heaven? Can you imagine the day he walked back into heaven, this mighty conquering king, as he strode in there with nail scars on his hand and his feet, scars of battle, scars of victory. Can you imagine the thunderous shouts of joy that erupted that day in the heavenly court? They're still going. They will forever. Such is the joy he brings. And let me say, while we wait for that day, we get to join in that heavenly chorus. Even now, even now, we, his people here tonight, can join the celebration, his victory, with shouts of joy. We are those who are to exalt him, not just here, but in all of life, throughout the world, throughout the week. We are to be that TV warm-up guy running through this world with shouts of joy and calling people, He is our king. He has won and his reward is with him. Come join the party.
Our joy should be infectious. It should cause others to press their face up against the glass and see the joy that is better than anything they've ever experienced and see their God, their King, bids them to come and join. Well, as we finish, let me ask you this. What is it that you exalt in life? What is it uh, that you make much of? Now, for the youth here tonight, whose name do you carry with you to school? Whose name is on your lips? For the students, uh, some perhaps returning, some here maybe for the very first time, having just arrived in Sheffield, how long will it take for your fellow students to know he is your king and you're pretty happy about that? That you gladly live and speak for him with your life, your soul, your all. Or the parents here tonight. What do your children hear you and see you exulting? What is it in your home that is made much of? What is it that occupies your thoughts and activities? If we were to ask your children what makes you happy, when are you most joyful? What is it they're going to say? That's what you exalt. Or the workers. Do you work wholeheartedly for his glory as the one who knows your life and breath and everything else, your skills, your jobs, is from him and for him? Do you hold loosely enough to success and honour because you know that the inheritance he offers is better than anything this world could give you? And finally, for the seniors here tonight, are you a gravity-defying creature? And I'm not talking physically. Are you going in the opposite direction to many in your generation for whom the mounting years and the troubles that those years bring uh, bring ever-growing fear and sadness? Is he instead your shield and your very great reward? Is he enough such that you grow older but more sure in his promise and more joyful that he is with you and you will be with him? Clap your hands. It's actually a phrase that's more than just clapping in a song. It means to bind your heart to his, to bind together in relationship. Bind your soul, your life, your all to your king who has won and whose reward is with him. Live to shout joyful exhortations to him. For here at last, here at last is one worth all that weight of glory. Here at last is one who can take all the praise we can muster with all our might. Let's pray to him now. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. We're going to continue in prayer in just a moment, so please take a moment of quiet reflection before Chris Tufnell leads us in prayer.